you guys will go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading for today is from 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. What a wonderful passage to read with all the children in the congregation. It's just so awesome. Um, <laughs> some of you are like, wait, wait a minute, that's not the Sermon on the Mount. You're right, very perceptive. Uh, we are, um, are going to look at something different this morning, kind of a, what we call a one-off, uh, taking a break from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about the gospel and singleness. Uh, this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in, all right? Uh, Lord God, again, um, uh, we pray that your spirit would reign. A and I confess to you that I know, I know for a fact that your spirit is here with us, and your spirit goes and anywhere and does anything that he wants. And yet in my flesh, and in my own pride, I am often indifferent to your spirit. I am often determined to do things by my own power and my own will. And that is sin, Lord God. And I just pray that we would be filled with your spirit today. That we would not be indifferent. That we would not ignore. But that we would respond to your movement in this place this morning. That we would hear your word. And that it would be your word and not mine. And God, that you would move in our hearts today and that we would, we would grow closer to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you need to understand that, uh, first of all, our congregation has a tremendous number of singles in our congregation. And that is a tremendous blessing. There are churches all over the place that wish that they could have single people in their congregation. Uh, and, and at the same time, though, you also need to understand that I was not prodded by any human being to do this. There, there weren't a bunch of singles coming to me saying, hey, how come you never talk about singleness? Why, why aren't you doing what? Nothing like that happened. I will tell you, though, I was, I was prodded by the Holy Spirit, and I ignored him for a long time. I was prodded by the Holy Spirit to do this more and more and more. And, and I, was, I was even, I just felt like he spoke into my heart and said, you need to do this for a number of reasons. And one of them is to, is to help single people understand that, that uh, they are valued and they are loved 
by Jesus Christ and in the church, even though we aren't necessarily talking about them very much, if at all. Uh, and let me say this to the married people. If you're married, <clears throat> this sermon applies to you too. So you need to hang out. You need to stay. I know from experience that some marrieds have already checked out this morning and are even a little bit annoyed that we would do this. Well, this is just one Sunday. And I want you to understand that for single people, they can feel that way more than half of the Sundays as the American church often gushes about marriage being the standard bearer for the first-class Christian. So understand that. I'm trying to help us with a little empathy here. Okay? Now, certainly one of the things that we need to do this morning is keep 1 Corinthians 12 in our minds as we talk about this. We are one body with Christ as the head, but we are all gifted differently as the Spirit discerns. And by the way, it's by the same Spirit that we're all gifted differently. One body, one Spirit, one God, one Savior, but many parts, including married parts and single parts. And no part of the body can say to another part of the body. And this is Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 12. I have no need of you or you are not as important to me. So I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to take a quick look at that. Discuss a little bit of that. I'm not going to go through every verse in that chapter. But we'll go through a bit of it. And then we're going to try to give exhortations to everybody that's in this room. And admittedly, this is not a comprehensive view or message on singleness. That could never happen in just one Sunday morning. But it's a start. And again, I hope it will help us all to appreciate each other in Christ and not in status. And I hope, again, that, that, that I just uh, uh, shamelessly say, I hope singles will feel valued and, and loved by the church. Not by me, but by the church and by Christ. And here's the big idea. It is the gospel that unites us, not our demographic, not our status, and not our preferences. It is the gospel that unites us, none of these other things. But I will tell you that, that just my experience with the American Christian Church, and apparently it's an experience that many others have had because I've seen so many essays and articles written about this, um, most people in the American Christian church believe that it is things like demographic status and preferences that unite us. That's just not right. It is Christ that unites us. It's the gospel that unites us. And I understand, uh, you know, kind of word leaked out uh, this week that th I was going to do this, and I've already gotten some questions from some people. Hey, wait a minute, you're married. How can you possibly speak into this, you know? And I get that. I understand that, Okay. But I'm also a Christian, as you are, and, and that commonality allows single people and married people to seek counsel from not just single people and married people, but from the community of faith that God has surrounded you with. And for you singles, that includes married people like me. I know you may find this hard to believe, but I was once single, and I can even remember what it was like to be single. And now, regarding 1 Corinthians 7, it's a famous passage that talks about both marriage and singleness. And the reason Paul does that is because of context. <laughs> it's pretty hard to talk about these things without providing the context of contrast. Okay? 
And it is also how we live our lives. We're single or we're married. We're widowed or divorced. So one way to summarize what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 is this. Singleness is not a form of purgatory or second-class citizenship, and marriage is not the privileged Christian position. That's the first thing that I think summarizes what Paul teaches here. And then another thing that Paul is trying to get here is this. Okay, And listen closely to this. This is really important. Wanting marriage too much or disdaining marriage too much, which are both very common in our 21st century culture. There is the idol of marriage, and then there's the idol of disdaining marriage in our culture. So wanting marriage too much or disdaining marriage too much will never serve you well. If you've idolized either one of those things, it's just not going to serve you very well. Singleness and marriage, like all of life, need to be approached in a gospel-centered way. That's how we approach these things. So let's uh, jump into 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Understand that in the background there is Genesis 1.24. I'm sorry, Genesis 2.24. You know, that you're going you're gonna to leave your parents when you get married, and you're going to be knit together as one. You are one flesh. Okay, so Paul has that in the background there. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul's in the process in this letter of now of answering some questions that the church at Corinth had. And, and you know what? They're all the same questions that we have. That's why 1 Corinthians is such a helpful uh, letter. Because we have the same Christian uh, questions. And, and the reason that something that was written more than 2,000 years ago can be helpful today is because this is God's word poured out on the pages for us, and God is timeless, and a timeless God would never produce dated material. And so it applies to us as well today. And so here's, he's answering the question, and here's his answer. Sex outside of the created order, which we find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that's the created order, Genesis chapter 3 then, be, then, then brings the disorder of God's creation through sin. And Paul talks about that disorder a lot in Romans chapter 1, the second half of chapter 1, if you want to take a note to read that. But sex outside of God's created order is not helpful. As good as sex is, or it may seem like a great idea outside of his created order, Sex outside of his created order will not lead to wisdom and flourishing. And that's not just God's word speaking. Studies have proven this over and over and over again. Longitudinal studies, social science study, it doesn't matter. Christian studies, non-Christian studies, studies have, there, there is a body of research on this that proves this definitively. And it's always interesting to me how people want to say things like, I'm just going to follow the science where that takes me until the science tells me to do something that I don't really want to do. It's always interesting. That's the human proclivity 
towards selfishness there. And look at verse 2. I mean, seriously, we can identify with this, right? Sex is tempting. Sex is good. Can I get an amen? That was not as enthusiastic as I thought. Anyways. But Paul gives us the biblical answer. One, mar- one man, one woman, marriage. And like I said, this is rooted, rooted in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You're going to leave and cleave. And that word that means you're going to be joined together as husband and wife literally means you're knit together as one. You are now one unit. Okay? Very important to understand that. Uh, Jesus mentions this. In, he doesn't mention it. He teaches it in Matthew chapter 19. Paul, when teaching about the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and what that means to marriage, uh, husband and wife, he also teaches this in Ephesians chapter 5, that the two become one flesh. And literally what that means is what happens to one happens to the other. That, that, that if you're in a marriage where you're trying to let things happen to each other without being involved in it, that's a problem. That's not a gospel-centered marriage. That you rejoice together when one is rejoicing and you weep together when one is weeping. That you celebrate together and you mourn together. Paul even says in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up Uh, For her, he says, because no one has ever hated his own flesh. You see what he's saying? He's saying, your wife is your flesh now. You have to treat her with agape love, selfless, unconditional, compassionate love, as Christ treats us in the church, because she is now your flesh. And oh, by the way, you are part of her flesh now as well. You see that in 1 Corinthians 7. Here, as Paul teaches about this. But then in verse 5, you see that Tom Schrader's mentor, and Tom's now like my spiritual father, so I guess my spiritual grandfather, Larry Wright, here's how he describes 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Sex inside of marriage, it's yaha time. Do you understand? Paul is encouraging us here, and I'll tell you, here's why this is hard, okay? Uh, I've talked to other pastors over the years. When I first started hearing this, I found it to be hard to believe, but I've also experienced it as well. It is shocking the number of celibate Christian married couples there are in the church. And I'm not talking about couples that are like, you know, past their prime, Talking about young, vigorous, robust people who, this shouldn't be this way. This is God's gift to us. And it is important to your marriage. It's important to your marriage. Now, verses 6 and 7. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul uses this word gift here to talk about single people. This is really interesting. You ever had this unpacked for you? I hope so. What does Paul mean here? Okay. 
Um, when, when we hear that word gift, here's what I know most people tend towards, okay? God has gifted you in a certain way, so we think, we think utopia. He's given me this gift, so the exercise of this gift should be absolutely a stress-free, easy life because God's given me the gift. No stress, all ease, okay? Or here's the other side of that. It's drudgery. God would never gift me in something that I wouldn't want to do because that just wouldn't be spiritual. I need to buck under. He needs to give me the gift in something that I don't like or I don't want to do. It's drudgery. Okay? It's neither. It's neither one of those. It's not utopia. It's not drudgery. And, and both are really bad theology and both are a misunderstanding of who God is and what Jesus does for us. Rather, when Paul uses the word gift here and in other places in the New Testament, he always means this, an ability God gives us to serve others and build them up. That's for every gift. Spiritual gifts are for others' good and God's glory. And this is where we see the fingerprints of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on this text. It's the body of Christ. We are one in Christ, but we're all gifted differently by Jesus, and so we're all different members of the body. The eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. Now, the exercise of these gifts can be very rewarding. Yes, sometimes they are. And there's not one thing that's wrong with that. If God has gifted you in a way that you enjoy manifesting that gift, that's a wonderful thing. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be challenging, fatiguing, and hard. God gifts us in ways also where he calls us to work at it, and it can be fatiguing and hard. So, is singleness a gift to the body of Christ? Yes, it is. Single people are way less encumbered than married people, if you want to state it that way, and therefore have many more opportunities not only for service, but also to build community. Use that for the good of others and for the glory of God. Oh, and by the way, let me just mention the singles that are at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, I'm telling you, without you guys, this community would be lost. We would be lost. The singles here serve in incredible ways. Stephanie talks about it all the time. Uh, Tammy, our children's director, just fantastic how many singles are serving in children's ministry. Um, I think of Ben Bear, who's single, who, who is a, just a tremendous help to me in so many ways. Really, really a blessing to us. So let's continue. Look at verses now 8 through 11. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. It's good for you to remain single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not uh, separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else uh, reconciled to her own husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So verses 8 through 11 remind us that divorce is not God's plan for married people, romance. Divorce is not God's plan but that's a topic for another time that needs tremendous help with contextualization and other teachings uh, in the Bible. But look at that verse 9. Physical attraction is not a bad thing. 
Again, we try to spiritualize sometimes this stuff too much. And, and, and God's saying, no, no, spiritual attraction is not, a, it's, it's a good thing. It's not the only thing, hear me, because things change, as you well know. But it's not a bad thing. Uh, just a little bit of perspective and insight on this. Uh, one of my favorite pastors and speakers, Alistair Begg, uh, he has a single friend who just turned 70. He's been single his whole life. And Alistair asked him one day why he remained single all of his life. And here's how, it, how he answered. He said, it boils down to this. The desirable has always been unavailable, and the available has never been quite desirable. <laughs> and then he added this. Then he added this. It fits me well anyway, because I would rather go through life wanting what I do not have rather than having what I do not want. <laughs> Skip down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is great advice. Great advice. There's something called false consensus effect. Uh, it's, it's the idea that uh, every one of us, and there's no exceptions to this, every one of us um, has a tendency to believe that everyone else has the same likes, interests, beliefs, values, attitudes, preferences, and dislikes that we do and are stunned when other people are different from us. That's the way we see the world. Paul's saying here, no, it's not even like that. God didn't even design you that way. He's gifted you differently. Larry Osborne, a pastor in, in San Diego, wrote a great book a long time ago called uh, Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. And in that book, he has four chapters, not one, but four chapters about this, this, tr this problem in the church of people in the church believing that if God has gifted them a particular way, then the church needs to get with it and make sure that everybody else is gifted in that particular way. That, that if I am interested in prison ministry, well, then you all need to be interested in prison ministry or you're not real Christians. If, if I'm interested in refugee ministry, then you all better be interested in refugee ministry. You understand what I'm saying? We are one body with many parts. There are some of us doing prison ministry, some of us doing refugee ministry, some of us doing foster care and adoption, some of us doing children's ministry, some of us just stacking chairs. Do you see that? And all of us are important in that combination. That is great advice. Now jump down to verse 25. Read 25 through 29. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed man marries, she is not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she is not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. <laughs> and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. So uh, in verse 26, this present distress, it's the idea that they are living in the end times. They, they thought the church, early church, this is the end time. We're living in the end times right now. 
And so many people were saying, well, if the end times are coming and I'm married, I need to get separated from my spouse for whatever reason. And all the single people were saying, well, if the end times are coming, I need to get married real quick before Jesus comes again. Everybody, here you go. Everybody's unhappy in their present situation. Ever heard of that before? Paul is saying, calm down and remain as you are. And then it's interesting that Paul acknowledges that marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. Can I get an amen? Okay. Wow. There you go. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> and listen, I like my marriage. I really do. Recent studies, though, again, longitudinal studies, great, great breadth and great depth on these studies, report that 73% of married people, if given the chance, would pick a different spouse. More than 7 out of 10. The grass is always greener. And they're just going to be as troubled and sinful as the last one you had, I guarantee you. Uh, by the way, <clears throat> I'm one of the 27%, and you 73% out there, you stay away from Jackie, okay? You understand that? <laughs> But marriage is hard. You know why? You are taking two sinners and putting them together in the same crucible. That's what you're doing. Uh, it's not exactly worded this way in the Bible, but I think I've, I've captured the spirit of it when I say that this is God's sanctification through annoyance. We do a lot of premarital counseling here in marriages. I'm doing 25, 30 weddings a year and even more premarital counseling than that each year. It was never like that at my previous church, and my previous church was twice the size of this. And I rejoice in that. What a blessing that is. Bring it on, y'all. But one of the things I get asked occasionally is, um, are you going to you know, do the Myers-Briggs inventory on us to see if we're compatible? My answer is, no. I already know you're incompatible. <laughs> you're both sinners being put into this same crucible. But we have, we have an ace up our sleeve. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, I I like the Myers-Briggs. I think it's wonderful in marketplace situations. Uh, it just points out the obvious, though, in marriage. You're probably not going to get along sometimes. Okay? Last little passage, verses 32 through 38, Paul says, I want to remain free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And, the in and his interests are divided. And the married or betrothed woman is anxious about the, uh, the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of uh, the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. <laughs> Tee <-hee. laughs> This is practical and wise counsel from Paul. And again, this is not condemning or pejorative in any way towards marriage or singleness. It's just a genuine practical reality. And all of this is rooted, again, in how God has gifted us and wired us. Paul is saying, here you go, here's what Paul's saying. Unpack and use your gifts. Now, in the time that we have remaining, I have some exhortations for you. Here we go. First of all, let's say this. The modern American Christian church, and when I say that, I'm talking the 20th and the 21st century American church, as it pertains to single people, and that would include widows and people who are divorced, the modern American Christian church, as it pertains to single people, has never really looked very much like the Christian church of the first three centuries, when this was fresh and new. Historian and theologian Stanley Hauerwas has studied this deeply, and he writes this. Christianity was the first religion ever that held up single adulthood as not just a viable way of life, but a sustainable and productive way of life. He points out, for instance, that before Christianity, single people in all cultures and all religions were looked down upon as and considered flawed in some way. Yet in the new church... Christians were never pressured to marry as others in other religious communities and in other cultures were pressured. Why is that? Because the church considered itself the family of the single person, honoring and even encouraging the gift and the choice to remain single. And the church actively served those in the community who were not married, never married, widowed, divorced. They actively served them. So why did the early church have this attitude? Here's why. It's because the gospel and the hope of the kingdom of God de-idolizes marriage. The gospel and the hope of the kingdom de-idolizes de marriage. I'm not saying that marriage is bad. I'm just saying it's not your God. It's not a false God. If anything, the modern American church has, in fact, idolized marriage, and so has our culture in many ways. It's the same way we often idolize technology or, or education or wealth or status or whatever it is that we're worshiping instead of the one true God. Billy Graham once said this, all idols, all false gods work splendidly at first, but in the end will bring us disappointment. Why? Because false gods never fail to fail. Again, I'm a proponent of marriage, especially based on mine with Jackie. It's been great. But there are other ways to live the vibrant, robust Christian life because the life of the Christian depends not on marriage but on Jesus. And one of the challenges for the American Christian church is that we tend to put our hopes into things that are not the gospel. And one of the most significant of those is romance. We put our hope in romance. We romanticize romance. By the way, to others that are fairly primary in the church and in our culture, money and sports. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. But if your hope is in those things and not in Christ, you have a false God problem. Our hope is in Christ, and the church is our body. And I know, I know, I know the church stinks at this sometimes. But so does your romantic partner. And if you're going to worship a false god, you should at least hold your false god to the same standards that you hold the one true God to. Another thing that I've noticed about people, myself included, when we have a false god, we tend to hold the false god to really low standards. You know why? Because it's a false god and it can't live up to the right standards. But when we come to God, we, we, we hold him to this incredibly high standard as he should be. But if you're going to have a false god, try holding that false god to the same standards. It might give you a little bit of perspective. Okay? Even the best marriage and the best family cannot fill the void in our souls that is reserved for Jesus Christ. So singles, one thing I would encourage you in is this. You need to develop a deep and fulfilling love relationship with Jesus or else you will begin putting too much pressure on your dream of being married, which is totally unhealthy. And by the way, you married people, you need to do the same thing. Uh, Paige Brown, who has written considerably on singleness in the church, she says, listen, singleness is not plan B for the Christian life. And then she goes on to say this. I want to unpack this a little. I think this is really good because I've experienced all of this. I've watched this. She says, the three most common ways that churches try to explain singleness. Now, isn't that interesting that she uses that word, but it's the right use to word, right, right word to use. You know why? Because, because we feel like we have to explain singleness. Ex singleness doesn't need any explanation. We don't have to explain that, just like we don't have to explain God or defend God. But here are the three most common ways that churches try to explain singleness. Number one, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, then he'll bring someone special into your life. Uh, he already has. His name is Jesus. And contentedness, by the way, listen to this. This sounds like a methodology of contentedness. Contentedness is not a method by which one earns blessings from God. We have already been blessed by God, and therefore we are content. We're getting it all backwards. Contentment is the result of already knowing God. By the way, sometimes this is, it seems, how God works. Sometimes. You ever notice that? You want something very badly, and then finally you decide that you can live without it, and then God brings it into your life, a job, a, a career, a promotion, a living arrangement, a raise, a romance, whatever it is. But if this becomes our methodology for how we're going to manipulate God, forget it. I've tried manipulating God. He laughs and laughs and laughs. Number two, as a single person, you can commit your whole life to the Lord's work. <laughs> well, this kind of sounds to me like a form of emotional martyrism. And I'm not sure that God wants us looking for ways to be martyrs. Uh, if you're taking notes, see 1 Peter chapter 4 and see uh, John chapter 15. Now, it is true that singles, Paul even says here, singles can serve the church and serve others in ways that married people often cannot. But it sounds, here's what this sounds like. When I hear a church saying, as a single person, you can commit your whole life to doing the Lord's work. Here's what this sounds like to me as the receiver of that communication. It sounds a lot like people trying to get out of doing stuff and putting it on the singles. That's what it sounds like to me. Married people, you're supposed to serve as well. And then number three, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. 
thank you for groaning, because this one really riles me. It really riles me. Now, understand, um, theologically, right now, uh, standing before God, we've already been made wonderful in Christ. Amen? We are righteous right now. Okay? We are redeemed. But we also have to live in this world, which is somewhat unwonderful. Amen? See, Scripture sees marriage and really all Christian relationships as two broken vessels. Literally, in 2 Corinthians 4, two cracked pots. Two works in progress, partnering with God to conform you and the other to the image of his son. That's Romans chapter 8. You will never be perfectly wonderful. And there isn't somebody out there perfectly wonderful for you. We are all grace needers. That's why the gospel of Jesus is so important to marriage and it's important to singleness. Here's a huge problem with 21st century singleness and romance, and this is true in the church as well. You and I are looking for finished products. Single people are walking around looking for this perfectly finished product. <laughs> Keep looking. And, and here's how, you, how, how we define a perfectly finished product. We want somebody good-looking and financially prolific. That is the holy grail of romance, good-looking and financially pr prolific. Ooh, good-looking and money. <laughs> Jackpot. Now, you may not say that out loud, but internally, I know you because I know me. As a result, Tim Keller says it this way. Listen to this. Modern dating has become a remarkably crass form of self-merchandising. You must look good and make money if you were to attract dates. Like a little mousetrap. Here's the cheese. I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter again. I was on for four years, got off for a while because uh, I got hacked and it was just a distraction. I got talked into going back on it. I'm reading profiles. I got to tell you. Uh, there's more than a few profiles that are just a tad awkward and maybe even revolting. Look at me. I, it's just, I, I, could we just practice a little bit of humility? Okay. You're not a finished product. Quit presenting yourself as one. Be honest. This is also why Christian Mingle raises some flags for me. Their marketing is all about the idol of romance and product presentation and hardly at all, if ever, about the gospel. Be careful of that. You understand, there is no genuine hope in that at all. Uh, looks fade and money and careers can be lost. Think about this. How different would the church look if all of us, married and single, viewed marriage as a venue for helping each other become what God is calling us to be rather than someone just to hook up with for my own benefit? What if we viewed marriage and singleness both as ways to encourage each other to pursue and embrace what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, what if the community of faith, the church, was a place of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Remember also, there are seasons when a single person, you need to remember this, there are also uh, single, uh, seasons when a single person Though desiring to married, be married, should not be seeking marriage. Times of transition, job location, education, transitions in, in church. We should be patient and embrace these seasons. And something else for singles to consider. I, I think it's important for us to start putting friendship development before romantic development. 
Do you really want to be married to somebody that you don't necessarily like as a friend? That's pretty miserable. Work on your friendship. I also would say this, though. I don't buy the notion that you should wait to get married until you're ready. You know why? You know why. <laughs> you're never ready for marriage. Okay? If everyone waited until they were ready to be married, no one would be married. Do you understand that? This is similarly, if people waited in, uh, until they were ready to have children, before they had children, we would die out in one generation. That's all it would take. Like that. We would be gone. Okay? I love what Paige Brown writes. I pray consistently about marriage. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. And I may never have another date because God is so good to me. Um, I, I know I'm just right on the time, but I want to spend five more minutes on this because I think this is really important. Uh, this next little bit is something that I spend a lot of time unpacking in, a, in myriad contexts, and I think it's helpful for all of us to hear this, married people and single people. Married people, if you're struggling in your marriage, I am guessing that you can trace all of the symptoms of your problems in your marriage back to these four gospel truths of a gospel-centered marriage that I'm about to present to you. And single people, you need to understand, if you're dating someone or thinking about getting married or not dating someone and thinking about getting married, if you cannot live out these truths with the person that you're going to marry, don't marry them. These are the four truths of a gospel-centered marriage. And, and I would love to unpack them more fully. I can, I can do that in 45 minutes. I'll do it in five minutes here just to give you an idea. Number one, you need to remember that you are marrying or married to an image bearer of God. That changes your perspective in your relationship when you remember that the person you're with was created by God. A masterpiece of his creation, a crown jewel of his creation, that's who you are with. And that's straight from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James talks about it in his letter in, J in James chapter 3, where he's talking about the problem uh, with how we use our tongue to speak to one another. And along about in verses 8 and 9, he says, the tongue is a house of fire and nobody can understand it. With it, we use our tongue to praise and worship our Lord who is in heaven. And with that same tongue, we use it to curse others who are made in his image. It ought not to be that way. Remember, you are married to an image bearer of God. Uh, number two, you need to remember that because of the fall, Genesis 3, you are not marrying a finished product, but you are marrying a work in progress. That, that you are being called into this to seek holiness, not happiness. That you are being called into this to seek God together so that you can partner with God to make each other into what God wants you to be. And, and that scripture looks at us as works in progress, not finished products. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul says, And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. You're not done yet. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, he says this, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And in Romans chapter 8, he says, we are being conformed to the image of his son. You are married to a work in progress, and you are to partner with God to help in that. You need to be friends and lovers and advocates and coaches and, and encouragers in the midst of that. Number three, out of reverence for Christ, you are to submit to one another. And that's straight from Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus submitted to the cross for us. I can't submit to her. I can't submit to him. Jesus submitted to the cross. Surely we can work on our humility and our submission to each other. That's a big, big deal. Wives, respect your husbands. Affirm your husbands because he needs it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church because she needs it. That's how we submit to one another. And then number four, love God more than you love your spouse. I know this is counterintuitive, but it's true. If you love God more than you love your spouse, you're going to have a great marriage. You're just going to have a great marriage. The call to marriage, as I mentioned, is not the call to happiness, but to holiness. If we put holiness before happiness, we'll actually end up being content and happy. But if we make happiness the goal, we'll miss it. We'll completely miss it. And I know this is true. I've just watched this bearing itself out in so many different relationships. You take one person who loves God and his son Jesus Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're fully devoted to doing that. You take that person and you put them together with another person who also is fully devoted and committed to loving God and his son Jesus Christ with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. You put those two people together and what are you going to have? You're going to have what you've been looking for in terms of relational fulfillment. You're going to have people who serve each other, protect each other, advocate for each other, and love one another the way Christ has called us to love one another. That's just true. So marrieds, you need to work on that. I need to work on that. Single people, you need to understand that what you're pining for, if you're pining for marriage, and I understand why you would, but if you're pining for marriage, that's what you're getting into. And it can be a great thing, and it can be a really hard thing. Trust God in the midst of this, not yourself or the Internet or our culture, or anything else. It is clear that in a healthy gospel community, single people and married people must share their lives. It's the same as varying generations need to share their lives, varying ethnicities need to share their lives, varying backgrounds, varying cultures, varying preferences, Preferences, all of these things need to be shared. We are Christ followers first and centrally. I am not a white Christian. I am not a married Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be white. I am a Christian who happens to be married. Let's make sure we get the order of this correct. And Redemption Arcadia, I think, has been pretty good at this, to be honest with you. Kudos to us in, in the midst of this. I look around and I just look at our community and I say, we really are blessed 
But we got to keep it up. We got to keep seeking God. We got to keep coming to his throne of grace and asking for the spirit to fill us. We cannot let the guard of the gospel down in our lives. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I pray for everybody who is here. But Lord God, especially right now, I pray for the single people who are here. I pray for those who have been widowed. I pray for those who are divorced. I pray for every one of them that you would fill them, you would encourage them, and you would let them know by the power of your son and his resurrection, they are loved and valued. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to